Hi listeners, before we get started, a quick announcement. The National Science Foundation, together with the Arizona State University, offering a three-week intensive methods training for PhD students. The NSF Cultural Anthropology Methods Program will be held virtually from June 26 to July 7th and will offer the opportunity to advance your knowledge of cultural anthropology methods and connect with people in the field. Apply by March 15th at methodsforall.org. That's M-E-T-H-O-D-S for all.org. The link will be included in the bio of this episode. Now, on with the show. recording a special academics episode, a panel discussion actually, and it's, I believe, the first panel discussion on the Sausage of Science podcast. So we are very glad to be pioneering this and hopefully this won't be our last. But Delaney and I are the producers for the Sausage of Science podcast and you've heard both of us in previous episodes where our work was highlighted, which was really fun. And so we thought we could do this panel discussion with fellow graduate students about how COVID has impacted their journey, their research, and then we'll discuss about how it has impacted our work as well. Yeah, that's right. And this episode is part of a broader effort at the Sausage of Science to do academic episodes, which essentially unpack maybe lesser known aspects of academia or sort of navigating academia and non-academic professions as well as anthropologists and social scientists. And we're really excited to have this episode coming out. I think it's really timely, given that a lot of people are trying to figure out how to shift their research and shift their focus and cope with the COVID-19 pandemic. Maybe we want to introduce ourselves a little bit again, just who we are and what schools we attend and what our research is. Delaney, you want to start us off? Sure. So I'm a third year PhD student at the University of Washington in Seattle, and I study human biology and anthropology, and I'm interested in adolescent stress and sort of what makes adolescents stressful and then how that corresponds with things like pubertal development and underlying neuroendocrine mechanisms. Yeah, well, your your research, you're going to have a lot of COVID impacts to research now, but also way in the future later, right? Like that has right now and will have an impact on your work. So I am a fourth year, I believe. Yeah, a fourth year graduate student at the University of Notre Dame in the anthropology department. I'm actually Kara's graduate student. I study human energetics and adaptation and adjustment to cold. I look specifically at brown adipose tissue. My dissertation research, which just started, is in Samoa. And as we'll talk later, I personally am not in Samoa, given the circumstances, but I was lucky enough to find a way to still have data being collected in a Samoan location on Samoan participants and have the possibility to look at the research questions of how much brown fat activation there is in a tropical population and in a Polynesian population and what that might tell us about the impacts of brown fat on metabolism, on energy expenditure, but also the role that brown fat may have played in human evolution. So lots to talk about today. Yeah, definitely. 
So welcome. We have our three panelists today, uh, which are Kayla Hurd, Luisa Rivera, and Taylor Von Dorn. I'll open the floor up to them. Uh, maybe introduce yourselves one at a time. Just tell us your name, what institution you go to, where you're at kind of in your grad program, and what your research is in, in general, broad terms. I can go first. So I'm Kayla Hurd. I'm a fourth year PhD candidate in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Notre Dame. I'm a biocultural anthropologist and I study food, nutrition, edible insects in Oaxaca, Mexico. Hi, my name is Luisa Rivera. I am a 4.5 year doctoral student in anthropology at Emory University. Um, I also work in a biocultural, like a critical biocultural framework, and I study intergenerational trauma in a post-conflict community in the borderlands of Northwestern Guatemala. I'm Taylor Van Doren, really happy to be here. I am in my sixth year of my PhD program. I've been ABD for two years, so hopefully I'm coming up on the end here very shortly. I am a biological anthropology student at the University of Missouri. And I focus on socioeconomic inequality and factors that lead to differential mortality in the 1918 flu on the island of Newfoundland in Canada. So I study like demography and epidemiology and the sociality of people and how that influences, you know, their differential risks from uh, mortality from a pandemic event. So this has been a little bit of a crazy year for me, as you can imagine. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of a lot to be unpacked here with the the pandemic and your research. But I think that is that is the case for all of us as we're going to be discussing. And that is why we've invited you guys. And we are very excited to hear all of your insights into how you've managed things over the past year and how that has affected your research in the long run. So Taylor, do you mind starting maybe telling us how you got to the point that you are now? Yeah, I would love to. So it's pretty common for people to not be exposed to anthropology, I think, until they're in college or later, uh, just because there's no high school analog to anthropology. Like at my high school, you could take psychology and sociology like very, very briefly. But one of my very first classes in college was anthropology. And my advisor just dropped me in it because it was a gen ed to fill a requirement. And I just remember leaving my first class on a Wednesday morning at 10 a.m. and being like, I need to know everything about this, absolutely everything about it. And it was a whole new world to me that just opened up over the next four years. So I was on a pretty clear trajectory to want to go to medical school for long before that. And then a couple years into my college career, and then I realized that it wasn't necessarily the type of challenging environment that would fit my personality. Not to say that medical school, of course, is not challenging, but in the sense that I had a lot different like intellectual curiosity. And I decided to pursue the academic path because I love to do research and I love to create knowledge. And that's just a very appealing job to me to be a forever learner and a forever student. So I came to the University of Missouri not really having a project or anything, just knowing I loved infectious diseases 
I really liked studying tuberculosis and social inequality. And my advisor, she was a 1918 flu expert and had a lot of data from the work she's been doing for uh, longer than I've been alive. So uh, she kind of brought me into that. And here, here we are. I, you know, I, I love studying flu. I love studying pathogenic and non-pathogenic comorbidities with influenza. I love studying pandemic epidemiology. And so there are just a lot of things that went exactly right. You know, I had to really trust myself along the way to turn away from medicine at, you know, a point pretty early on to decide I didn't want to go that path that might have been a little bit more financially secure and might have been a little more certain down the line. But honestly, I couldn't be happier. And I'm really glad that I trusted myself to take those steps. And so that's how I found anthropology, or rather how it found me, and that's how I kind of got here. It's great that you let your intellectual curiosity drive you. We recently had Benjamin Campbell on, and he mentioned something similar to that, just letting that intellectual curiosity keep going and help direct your path. Yeah, I think that's really important. I When I, when I think back about it, like on it, to me, there doesn't seem like there was another option for me in that sense. Like that is who I am as a person and that I wouldn't necessarily be being true to myself if I didn't follow that path. And so I'm just glad I had the guts to do it. And, you know, I think it worked out pretty well. Well, it's working out now. So I'm really happy I did it and am still doing it and have the opportunity to continue doing it. Yeah, you would you would also be surprised how many potential MDs have been lost to anthropology. Uh, <laughs> I think I I know that I was kind of on the pre-med track. Yeah, that didn't that didn't work out. So Louisa, do you want to tell us a little bit about your origin story? Sure. It's long because I, I entered my PhD when I was 31, I think. So I really um, had like a full life. Like I had like a regular career before deciding to do this. Um, I think about that a lot. <laughs> I, um, unlike, unlike a lot of students, unlike a lot of the pre-med students, I was a lit major. I was comp lit. And my undergrad was in French, Italian, Spanish literature. And I really focused on romance uh, of feminist literature of the medieval period. So like super different, right? I read a lot of postmodern theory. I read a lot of literary theory, a lot of feminist theory. And then I was like uh, lanzada into the world in 2008, right? During the crash. And it was a, it was like a really hard time to find a job as a college grad. And so I had like a million jobs. I had like the most wonderful 20s. I worked as a wine producer. So I like worked on a forklift and like made wine, like were crushed, power washed stuff. I worked as a medical interpreter in a large hospital system. I worked as a prisoner's rights advocate at a law firm doing advocacy for mentally ill prisoners in California. And then I also worked as a home birth midwifery apprentice <laughs> and then a Planned Parenthood. So I had many jobs and they were all really focused around kind of, you know, the, the nature of inequality, trauma and reproductive health, right? There was this kind of common thread that was really pulling them together. And so I uh, went and got a master's in public health because I thought I'd want to kind of continue in reproductive health and reproductive justice. And um, I got that at the University of Minnesota, and it uh, opened up the whole like adverse childhood experiences discourse for me. I'd like never really heard about that. I'd never thought about that from an epidemiologic or physiologic standpoint. And I got so just turned on by this. And at this point, I had also done a postback in bio because um, 
to go to wine school, you basically have to do a pre-med. You have to do like orgo and bio and microbio. So I like did a post pre-med, post back but to go to enology school. <laughs> and then I was like, wait a minute, it's a terrible industry. So I did this and then I, I got this really cool job being a clinical research coordinator at UCSF in a study of uh, trauma exposed caregivers and young children, so child trauma research program. And they were doing their first bio study and they wanted to see sort of how biological functioning in the moms and in the kids was changing across like years of intensive, intensive trauma treatment. Um, and, you know, we know like, oh, this like early trauma has this cell size effect on adult phenotypes, but no one was really looking at kind of these proximal mechanisms um, and this group of researchers was, and yeah, I just fell in love. It was, it was like love at first sight. Like I saw those Excel sheets and I just, this couldn't, couldn't really be, uh, be anyone else. Um, and I think also when you're exposed to academic environments and you meet a PI, like who's like, you know, you're just like, man, like one day I'm going to be like her. Um, I met one. I met one. I had a mentor like that where I was like, this woman is inspiring me to like live a really uh, intellectually rigorous life and a life that could have tremendous public policy impact. So that's how I got into it. Um, I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a social epidemiologist or whether I wanted to be an anthropologist. That was like a decision for me. And I think I ended up going into bioanth because there was very little social epi that would allow me to have my hands on samples work in a lab and to directly have this um, close relationship to communities and individuals. And so that's what really brought me to this particular field, but it's a very small niche we're in. So um, now I'm like 35 and uh, looking for my first job. So. And who knows, it might be something related to social epidemiology because having a degree in something doesn't mean that you can't work in something else, just like your previous careers uh, with an S has proven. So that's wonderful. Do you want to uh, tell us who, if you don't mind, who your advisor is that, that kind of really got you, that like that you admired and got you? Into? Yeah, yeah. Like, like, like too many to shout out, but one is definitely Nicole Bush, who is like a health psychologist at uh, UCSF. And the other is Dr. Alicia Lieberman, who is a famous child psychoanalyst and famous theorist of intergenerational trauma from the perspective of like Latinx studies and also uh, the Holocaust. Kayla, do you want to tell us about your origin story? Sure. Going back to a little bit, about what Taylor said, I actually had an anthropology class in my high school that I took my junior year. So I was exposed to it a little bit early on. I mean, it was one of the easiest classes I took in high school, but it was elective that kind of like fit into everything. And I was like, this is pretty interesting. But what I grasped from that the most was actually archaeology. And I don't do anything with archaeology today. But at the time, I thought I was gonna be a forensic scientist. So when I decided to do my undergrad degree, I, I put together what I would need for forensics and I majored in chemistry and double minored in criminal justice and archeology span because I knew I would need this, the tools and the skills from archeology span for forensics. So it was actually the first class that I had in college, like Taylor as well, that was intro to archaeology and I fell in love with the professor, the way she taught and approached the course and just everything about it and I just needed to start doing research with her. So her name is Dr. Elizabeth Arnold at Grand Valley State 
and she actually does zooarchaeology work. So I got into her faunal analysis lab and we dissected animals and then got all the the bones and then labeled all the bones. And I quickly found out that that was not for me. (laughs) The smell, everything. I loved it. I loved the minuscule tasks of actually labeling the bones, but I could not handle being in a forensics lab. So I was like, okay, so moved on. Years progressed in my undergrad degree and I found myself actually getting more and more into anthropology. So it started out very archaeology and then it kind of got into chemistry and drug relatedness. I've always been interested in medicine too. So then I took a field school actually in cultural anthropology in Malta. Took a year off, gap year. Didn't know what I was going to do. Thought I was going to be a medicinal chemist. Um, Worked in a hospital for for a little bit, taught chemistry labs. Then I applied to PhD programs and I got into the master's program at Wayne State University where I met Dr. Julie Lesnick who studied um, edible insects and the paleoanthropological record. And I was like, okay, well, connecting my interests to hers, what about edible insects in current modern day populations? Which led me to Oaxaca, Mexico And from there, each year, my project's kind of been a little bit more nuanced, but it's kind of stemmed from those initial questions. And now I look at food and nutrition in the body and how like comfort food and perceptions of food are varying and the nutritional and dietary importance in the context of the pandemic too. So I've like put the pandemic into my research Kayla, it's so funny. I also have a chemistry degree. I studied chemistry in college too, and I don't do anything at all related to chemistry anymore, but I always think it's funny when I hear other anthropologists say that they study chemistry at some point because it's like a strange, like common thread that we have. I was so, so bad at like analytical lab, like wet lab stuff. So I had to come to terms with that and move beyond it. But I really enjoyed the subject and that's why I originally chose it. My first approach into anthropology was like, what about chemistry can I use to get into anthropology? So I was doing the chemical analyses on the insects themselves. And then that kind of got more and more cultural as times progressed. Yeah, Kayla, your work sounds really fascinating. I mean, on a personal level, like I'm a huge foodie and I love thinking about food history and uh, foodways and everything like that. It sounds really cool. And it sounds like you're really integrating sort of a biocultural approach. And all of you have really interesting and um, fantastic research paths and research interests. And I think especially for this panel, like there's a lot of varied research happening and a lot of varied like intellectual interests happening. So that's really cool. And I love that as anthropologists and as biological anthropologists, we can like find these these ways that we overlap, especially with biocultural anthropology. So maybe we can transition a little bit into how the pandemic has influenced your research interests or your emerging research interests. I know that for a lot of people, the pandemic, even if it hasn't directly impacted field work or lab work, et cetera, it's potentially impacted how we're thinking about the questions that we pursue as anthropologists. And so I was curious if if any of y'all had experience with that and kind of where you're at with that. I guess I can start with this one. So in terms of directly affecting the logistics of my research, I actually was not able to go to the field last year, obviously over the summer. And 
luckily NSF has this magical thing called a no cost extension that you can request. And you, they, they extend the period of your DDRIG. You, basically all you have to do is ask for it. So hopefully, hopefully I'll be able to go to the field this summer or this fall or maybe over the winter because there are just some things that I need to finish up in the archives and stuff that I haven't been able to do yet and should have already had by this point. And I mean, in terms of, you know, approaching my research topic, I mean, I study pandemics. So this is like, it's been a really, really interesting year in the sense that I no longer have to explain to people why an anthropological perspective on pandemics is interesting or why we should care about it. Whereas before it kind of seemed like a mismatch where it's like, but you study really epidemiology. So how is this an anthropological topic? But I think that's kind of one of the, it's kind of like a little bit of collateral duty, I guess, for the last year is that it's become widely like known as an applicable thing and that people are really interested in it. And especially because, you know, pandemics are a thing that happens in the world. It, like, it happens to humans and they're anthropogenic in the sense that they happen because of human behavior, which is really the like key of the anthropological approach to studying them, I think. So, you know, I'm, I'm still focusing a lot on the 1918 flu specifically, and I don't plan on integrating a lot of COVID-19 research specifically into my project, but I plan on doing a little bit deeper exploration of connecting the two in the sense that this is why it's really important that we study history in the context of human infectious diseases in history and what we can learn about them today. And also the idea that when the epidemic curve is done for COVID-19, that doesn't mean that we are done with the pandemic in a way, right? The consequences of the pandemic are going to persist for decades as they did, you know, after 1918 and as they did after, you know, the Black Death 500 years ago and things like that. So we have a lot of history to call upon and build a foundation upon to try to learn what are going to be the biological, demographic, cultural consequences of this pandemic into 2030 and 2040 and 2050, because they're not going to go away. Life is going to be different and different good or different bad, probably a little bit of both. We don't know yet, but the idea is that we have control over what it is. So that's kind of how I've started to reframe my thinking for my project in the 1918 flu. Yeah, so ironically, actually, this new pandemic has kind of emphasized the importance of you studying an old pandemic, right? Because it teaches us about how humans react to this and how the pandemic influences human behavior. And then your whatever you find in your research will be applicable to this specific, to the COVID-19 pandemic. And then it's kind of a chain reaction, right? Like once people use your tools to look at the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, they will be pioneers for the future pandemics because we know that given climate change and the increased uh, number of people on the planet and other factors, uh, there will be an increase in pandemics in the future. Yeah, yeah. And I think the predictability of pandemics also, as you kind of touched on there, is really important thing to recognize because 
the cyclical nature of influenza pandemics is such that we can expect about three to four per century. We already had one in the 21st century, 2009, you know, going back just a couple hundred years, we had 1889, 1918, 1958, 1969, and then up to 2009. So, you know, those are just flu pandemics. Those aren't other pathogen epidemics and pandemics, right? Like coronavirus is not an influenza pandemic. But one of the ideas is, you know, one of the points of studying historical pandemics is to figure out ways that we can do better the next time. And at least all in all of our lifetimes, we did better in 2009, but we're not necessarily doing better now. So what are the differences in the ways that we reacted a decade ago to now, a century ago to now, um, and why is there so much variation uh, beyond just the epidemiology of the H1N1 pandemic versus this coronavirus, um, you know, SARS-CoV-2 pandemic? What is the variation in behavior and political approach and like what's different among globalization between the 10 years? Or... So there's just a lot of ways that you can approach it. And, you know, I'm really glad that people are becoming more interested in the 1918 flu. I really am because there's just so much to learn from it and it's highly applicable. So, and kind of to build on that, you know, through your work and others, we can kind of try to see how the pandemic is sort of just the, the top layer on top of all of these other syndemics that are potentially relevant to, you know, the work that Louisa is doing, the work that's Kay that Kayla is doing. So yeah, it's definitely a really um, a relevant time to be doing this work. Yeah, I just one more comment to to respond to Delaney here is that yeah, I totally agree because like I said before, both pathogenic and non-pathogenic comorbidities and syndemics, you have to think about both of them because obviously uh, major global diseases like tuberculosis and HIV and AIDS are going to have their epidemiology shift as a result of this over the next couple decades. But also this pandemic has started to really expose more systemic inequalities in like maternal health and the way we approach postpartum health. And yeah, it's, it's done a really big job exposing a lot of the intense social inequalities. I feel like that's a great leeway into like some of the things that I can talk about because I use a syndemics framework as well because it, it's a syndemics framework of health and nutrition with diabetes, iron deficiency, anemia, obesity, thinking about nutritional disorders or um, deficiencies and how we think about food and perceptions of food in those analyses. So that's kind of where I was pre-COVID and COVID is, it's a mitigating factor. So most of the people that I work with and a lot of my field work has been in open air markets. Well, those open air markets are now closed. Where do people get their food? Where is access? All these structural barriers are playing and are mitigating factors as the syndemics, as we, what we've been referring and talking to before. People are now like using food potentially as coping mechanisms. And are they being healthier? Are they choosing healthier foods? Are they eating the junk that's in their cabinet? Kayla, you specifically changed your research questions, right, to focus on, on COVID. So you, it kind of, for you, the pandemic kind of happened right at that turning point when you were about to start and you kind of really flew in the moment and changed 
your research questions to to be appropriate to time so that is that is really interesting because it it didn't take anything away from your study it just added another layer and revealed yeah. more questions that can be answered yeah alex you put that perfectly because so i was actually writing my comps march 13th was when the united states locked down so i turned off all news and i was like oh we're in lockdown i'm writing my comps i'm locked down anyways so this all happened really fast for me and i was already looking at structural barriers and access to food and food insecurity but like you said it added this other layer to it and so that's when i pivoted and did incorporate COVID 19 and like how does pan pandemics impact food access and how are people perceiving their food options and their choices pre and post COVID 19 because i did a lot of um, pilot field work in 2019 prior to the pandemic. So I already have a year long study that I have this unique opportunity to see what life was like and what food choices were like prior to a pandemic. And now I can look at it, hopefully if I go in the field in, uh, in the summer to see what food choices and life is like after a pandemic. So that's kind of where I'm sitting. What about you, Louisa? There's so many threads you could follow. It's like, how has the pandemic affected your research? You know, like every little neurotransmitter in my head is totally different now. So every thought I have is inflected by what we're experiencing. Um, very practically, I kind of got like kicked out of the field, midfield work. Um, so I left in mid-March, I think, towards the end of March. That's when I landed in the U.S. Um, and I had to make a really, it was very dramatic kind of like field vignette my um, partner was with me and uh, he like had crossed the border with his brother to come visit me. And um, I, I work right in right 20 minutes from the border of Mexico. Um, and it's a porous border. It's not like a very intense border. It's a very gentle border with like a chain link fence over it and dogs. <laughs> Easy place to traverse through. And out of nowhere, there was just like this massive military buildup at the border. And we had received no information about possible closures. Um, and I got like a word on the street, you know, from uh, from a friend who said like, they're gonna, no, they're gonna close in the morning and they're not gonna tell anybody because they don't want anyone to leave or move beforehand. And I was like, oh. <laughs> oh. Um, and as you know, a lot of people got stuck in Guatemala for a very long time because um, their borders were closed for a long time. So we had to make this really rapid decision whether we wanted to go to Mexico. Um, we were living, my um, partner and I were, had a house in San Chris, um, and then I was traveling to my field site, which is like really rural, and staying for like two months, and then I'd go see him, you know, come back. Um, so like, do we go to San Chris? What do we do? And we made the decision to, to go, and, and within hours, the border had sealed behind us. Um, and so I was like, my samples! <laughs> Um, they're still there. They're in a shoebox in a locked, uh, a locked cabinet that um, a man made for me. Um, I think there's one key to that lock that is the key to every cabinet in the village. <laughs> um, you know, we had to leave and, and I was about maybe like 30% recruited at that point um, for, for kind of the, the families I wanted to have like a tri-generational study design. So I recruit grandmas, moms, and little kids. And yeah, it was like, well, now what, you know? And I think that 
something I really want to emphasize and that I came to this podcast wanting to emphasize is okay and normal to feel a sense of loss and like just real mourning that something you've been working very hard, like four years of your life and you get real married to it, it's going to change. It's going to change in, in ways that you can't control and um, your efforts at control may only distress you more. So like acceptance is a big part of this. Um, so I think for me, a big thing has been accepting, like I'm not going to tell the NSF that I'm going to be back there and recruit the rest of that sample. And you know, frankly, we just don't know. We don't know when we're going to be able to go back. And this is a very vulnerable population and it is unethical for me to go there and potentially bring COVID, you know? Um, so it, it made a huge influence on my life. Um, and it, it did a lot of really good things for me, really good things. Um, one of them is it gave me permission to write up my ethnographic work. I think as um, anthropologists, biological anthropologists, we are, you know, it's like qualitative and mixed method work is put on a lower um, hierarchy of value. It's like, oh, you know, it's a qual paper. It, it allowed me to say like, look, you know, these are 60 interviews that are, like I spent 10 hours with some of these women. <laughs> so there's like such a rich data source and really important and merits its own publication, merits its own work. So that has been really valuable to me. And then the other thing that it kind of has allowed me to do is to expand the scope of what I ever hoped to learn in those samples and think what extent data sets exist and how can I collaborate with people who have been trying to ask these questions but haven't had a multi-generational perspective, an anthropological perspective, a life history perspective, right? They haven't exactly known what trade-offs to look for because epi doesn't necessarily think about life history theory very much it has been really wonderful and so i've been able to partner with a cohort study in memphis to kind of to do a flavor of what i had originally thought i would do in guatemala but in a different tissue and in a very different social context um so it's like a lot of pivoting <laughs> that's a lot of uh hard work um it certainly will add a year to my phd I, I think that's okay also for us to talk about. I think people feel like pressure to finish. It's normal that this would add time to your time to completion. Um, and I, I definitely see that for myself. Um, but it, it, it's also been very productive in the sense that, you know, hard questions that maybe I wasn't willing to ask about how I was engaging with the community I worked with, about what I'd hoped to find there. I have a lot of time to think about that now. Um, and I have a lot of space to walk away from certain hypotheses and from certain things I might have done otherwise. Um, and for me, that's been a real blessing. So yeah, a real, real mixed bag, but, but really um, for me, I think, uh, I think I'm surviving. <laughs> I don't know if I'm resilient, but I'm still here. So. No, I, I, I think what you said is, is incredibly important because it is not just about the research, right? It's about who we are as as researchers and how much work and effort we've put into this and then suddenly because we all kind of like we see the finish line of that phd we but and yet and then we get this this huge pandemic that kind of puts a wrench in our in our work but you you put it beautifully by saying that it is okay to mourn that it is okay to realize that things just won't be this the way that we thought it was and even because we know right like it none of this was easy to begin with uh so it's making the best out of it 
and and seeing that even though some things didn't work out we get a lot more from other things uh for example i i was really looking forward to going to samoa which is where my field sites uh is and i was supposed to go in may and we knew that that was not going to happen and then uh, i decided in the summer that i was just not going to go to samoa so i didn't have i had no and then my whole research question was was about the fact that it was in Polynesia. So I couldn't I couldn't be like, oh, I'll find an American sample instead uh, because it had an evolutionary um, uh, theory question in, embedded in it. There was just, I, I just couldn't, couldn't do any of that. So the, I was so lucky that I was able to communicate with the researchers, the, the, the study group that I was going to uh, work with in Samoa. And uh, I spent the last last fall semester making training videos and communicating with them and teaching them how to collect the data uh, that I was going to collect myself. And so they, we just started this week, collect, they've started collecting the data for me, recruiting people for me. And so these are local researchers who've gotten the opportunity to do not just my uh, research project, but also other research projects from US researchers. Not all of us are grad students. A lot of, a lot of the people who are, are part of this project already had their PhDs, but every, everybody was halted. So, uh, and they, they were able to work with their own people and really gain agency in doing the work for themselves and really learning new things. And, on one hand, I am really sad I don't get to go, you know, to Samoa to like an island for for uh, so many months. But which which is also it was so hard in the fall to really focus on anything because I wasn't sure if things were gonna work out. Right, like I've never met any of these people. Um, it was hard to kind of really keep going. But seeing now how passionate and motivated, but also how great they are asking asking questions and really doing really willing to do this work uh has has made me so happy i've been i've been really excited and i'm kind of happy that i don't have to go on a 72 whatever hour flight you know all the way to the pacific in that same mindset the research assistants are in in samoa are now the head of all of those research projects and they they are much more successful in recruiting participants than I could ever have been. First, they speak the language. Second, they know how to approach people and explain things to them. You know, when I say, oh, you know, like it's, it's, it's the good kind of fat, like an avocado or something. People are like, what are you talking about? It makes no sense. Right. But it, it, it works in, in, in the U.S. context. And even as a European, I don't think I would be able to recruit Europeans successfully because I have been distanced from that, from that for so long, but I, I definitely would not have been as successful as Samoans are at recruiting and working and, and collecting that data in Samoa themselves. And that has been a blessing that I would never have been able to see if that all of that had not happened at exactly the moment that it happened. So. One of our questions was, how do you guys think that this pandemic has impacted not your research just now, but your research questions that you may have in the future and maybe giving you new opportunities for the future and new 
your interest that you might be pursuing maybe you know instead of looking for jobs in academia you might be interested in i don't know doing just field work or or turning more into epidemiology i'm both eleni and i are curious about hearing how long term uh, the pandemic has changed things for you and I'll, I'll just quickly add on to that just to, to emphasize that this is i think this is really important for people who are maybe thinking about grad school or thinking, you know, maybe they're in their first or second year or even early career scholars, because it's important that we be able to reflect on our own paths and be able to express to others kind of like skills and, and just life in retrospect to be able to, you know, impress that on, on other people so that they can maybe feel inspired or, or, you know, learn something from people that have been in grad school for a while or transitioning into a, a different career altogether. So first of all, I just want to point out that anthropologists have so many more skills than we even realize or know what to do with. And so you can go through those inventories of transferable skills. And it's, it's an amazing thing because you can go through and be like, I have a ton of these and I can totally market myself and see myself doing straight up research jobs or a lot of people are really pulled towards industry jobs and uh, don't know how to make the jump, but they know that they have all these amazing skills that will make them thrive in those environments. And so while I do want to continue on in academia specifically, I'm always very cognizant of all the amazing skills that just getting a PhD, first of all, can help an individual develop. I mean, it's a research degree. You start with a question and at the end, after so many years of all the crazy things that we do, we end up with an answer to that question, hopefully. But all of that stuff is super valuable. For me personally, I felt as if my most applicable or appropriate kind of crossover with another field was in public health. And I think that is probably true for both Kayla and Louisa to some degree. You guys have some ways that public health can influence your research and vice versa. But I've become really passionate about the idea of building formal bridges between social sciences and public health. And particularly in the sense that there's this amazing framework in public health called the social determinants of health that a lot of us here are probably familiar with, but it doesn't take into account very extensively historical factors that influence health today. So I think that anthropology, especially from like a historical epidemiological perspective, can help build the social determinants of health to become something a little bit more comprehensive and a little bit more holistic. And I'm actually in a group now called the AJPH Think Tank, which is this group of just six graduate students who advise the editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Public Health on some things, the projects that we want to do, the way the journal is set up, the way the journal communicates to its readership, both senior academics and to students. Uh, we're trying to promote and increase student engagement in public health, trying to educate public like through SciComm about what public health is, what we can do to support equitable resources for present and future public health leaders, and also to really endorse and promote intersectionality between and among public health and a lot of other fields that are public health adjacent, like life sciences, medicine, and the social sciences. And so 
I'm really excited to be part of that because I think the crossover is palpable and I've always been interested in public health anyway. So while I do intend to continue on the path of following the academic path, I think a lot of what I'm learning and what I'll be doing with this think tank and science communication about increasing the knowledge of what public health is to people who are public health practitioners, but also to the general public, I think is going to be really great experience. And I can clearly picture a couple of career paths that way if things don't work out or go the way I think. And I think as we've learned over the last year that things aren't necessarily always going to go the way they think they will. And, you know, Louisa said that so beautifully. So yeah, I just want to say like to all, if like students are listening to this and you're like, oh, like I have this, I've sunk all these resources into this life and I am doomed. Like you are not doomed. Like, you are very strong. You are very capable. You have so much that you can do. Just like Taylor is saying, like don't allow the imposter syndrome of academia to take from you the fact that you're a highly skilled worker with covetable, important skills. I really want to say this because particularly in our graduate careers, we can get in a little echo chamber where we have very little value, where ideas are no good, where someone's going to cut us down because we didn't read the paper right, where our advisor is going to be annoyed with our take on something. It's crushing. It's like ego crushing constantly. And you can internalize that and make it feel like you're actually of no use to this world. It's just not true particularly in times like these, when there is just so much need for health equity research, our hands can all be put to good use. So strong emphasis for that for any listeners, believe in yourselves. I think for me, I wanted to talk about with the pandemic is pedagogically what it did for me. Um, so I taught undergrad and I feel like all of us had this crazy feeling this year, which is like, you're getting emails and like, you know, you're working and all this stuff. And then part of you is like, oh God, like, what if people die? What if people die? And then we're also experiencing massive political instability and a huge clamoring for racial justice. And I remember, you know, like during the violence at the Capitol, I had this moment where I was like, oh God, like they're going to, like something really bad's going to happen. They're going to kill legislators. And I felt I have been prepared to talk about political figures being murdered on the media by my research. That's what I do. That's my research, right? Like political violence. I had never been prepared to live that way and to deal with the cognitive dissonance of being asked to respond to emails on that day and to give my students crap grades when their families died of COVID because they didn't turn things in. I was very radicalized by this experience. <laughs> And it made me really commit to a different kind of pedagogy. I refused to do this. We can't actually do this to students. It was so inhumane, right? That we would be putting them in lockdown browsers and watching them to make sure that they didn't cheat. Well, there's like substantial fear of death in life right now. So I think that is something I will carry with me for the rest of my life as an educator. That sense of compassion and this real belief that like the punitive relationship between me and students and the idea that if students aren't working in my class, it's because something's morally wrong with them. <laughs> we need to be done with this. And I think really revolutionize yeah, how we teach and hopefully the compassion that came from teaching in the pandemic will be over. It will continue. You're absolutely right. Education as like a field in itself has really come to the foreground this past year because of schools closing and kids being schooled at home and people saying, oh, they're going to be behind. But behind 
who, what, right? We're all in the same boat. There's nothing to be behind. It, it raises all of these questions. And like you said, compassion is necessary and not just in times of a pandemic. Also, anti-racism education has really made a stand and started making a point. There is definitely a reform in thinking about how we teach, what we teach, and how that impacts kids on the long run. And that is incredibly important. So I'm very glad you brought that up. Beautifully said, Louisa and Taylor. Like, you guys have had awesome points, and I feel like sometimes I don't even have stuff to contribute anymore because I'm like, snap, snap, snaps, because those are all great, you know? But no, so the one thing that I've been doing a lot more of and really has been at a core of what I wanted to do anyways was science policy. And I think, especially with the past administration and the future of this current administration now, is the centrality and the importance of science within the government and within science literacy in general. This past year, I've been pretty active with our science policy initiative at Notre Dame, and I've started writing one-page memos to Indiana state representatives to get more science literacy, and I've focused on more of the health and nutrition side of it, just making sure that the science literacy and communication is up to snuff because they're our state representatives. They're representing everybody in the community. And it's about portraying the actual science and the facts for people to learn from and how that impacts the policy that they're going to put forward. So that's something that I've been a little bit more active about. I've always known that I didn't want to be in academia. I wanted to be in local state or a federal government position and how that impacted policy, but probably more now than ever, that's been kind of a highlight that I needed to do. Yeah, that's so great. And I think a lot of people, including myself, sometimes forget that you can just call your representative like on the phone or send them a letter like that. Or like they're meant to be there with open lines as that's their one job, <laughs> it seems like. But yeah, I really love that, the science policy, because I love the idea of it in the sense that we have a big responsibility as people who do have a high degree of science literacy and helping fight misinformation and making sure that people know the difference between objective fact and subjective emotional belief. There's a place for each of those things, but emotion and belief are not necessarily going to have their place with objective fact and science. And so, yeah, I really love that. I'm glad that you're doing that. Right. And we're the ones that are trained in how to read these scientific papers and can pull from the different sources. So by doing so, it's just like making this readily available in a format that's accessible to the public. That's exactly. So thank you. I appreciate it. So a project that emerged for me organically from the pandemic has a really goofy name. We call it contact tracing fake news, but it's like multi-site ethnography that I'm working on with my best friend, which is really amazing, uh, Dr. Nicole Rosner, and with colleagues in Brazil, headed by uh, Dr. Liz Forlani Melanco. And what we're doing is we're looking at ethnographically how are people like sharing scientific information about COVID and particularly now the vaccine. We have a social life of science as scientists, right? Like Twitter, text each other. But what we believe, right? We have like these emotions, these subjective feelings. And then we're like, oh, but, you know, we really understand the science. But if you really think about it as a scientist, 
so much of what you know has to do with the social universe of what people around you know? <laughs> like we cognitively offload so much into our little community right i'm like oh like visionary medicine is this you know like i have these little thought communities and other people have these little thought communities too my partner comes from one that's pretty pretty anti-vax pretty suspicious of science and it's like the place where the left and the right meet in the back you know it's like this really interesting thing that happens and we're studying it now in Guatemala, sort of how are people sharing and learning about the vaccine and kind of tracing rumors, but particularly in nurses and in people who give the vaccine. We're seeing it in the U.S. too, right? Like 30% of healthcare workers are not taking the vaccine. It's, it's really, it's really a thorny and vivid question, I think. And I think it's thorny and vivid because like we do know a lot about COVID, but we also don't. And communicating that uncertainty is so hard for us as science, right? How do you communicate? It was probably good against the new variant. <laughs> probably. It's hard. It's really challenging. What you just said last reminds me of maybe that was one of the things that really delayed public trust in epidemiologists and public health and virologists because... We basically had to start from the beginning and explain, you know, the scientific method and say, like, this is how science works. We ask a question that we don't know the answer to and we chip away at it. And sometimes some of those answers can be wrong. And we just have to keep chipping away at it until we learn more about it. And in a sense, for many months there, we were playing catch up with learning about this virus. I mean, we still are. It's impossible to be at the pace of a virus. But also that rapid scientific inquiry led to a modern medical miracle, which was the development of these vaccines in such a short period of time. So I understand why people are still suspicious of these vaccines, obviously. There's a lot of reason to be very excited about them, obviously. But, you know, a lot of people who are not scientifically literate are going to be worried very much about them. Started early last year with just trying to teach people about how science works and how chipping away at things really works. A big component of this is how funding science works, because that really contributed to how fast this vaccine came out and having a governmental backup, which definitely helped in how fast this vaccine was made. It was accumulation of things, but first there was urgency, and second, there was a whole lot of funding that went right into this. It shows the public how important funding science is. Even if there are uncertainties, even if that funding may lead to more questions or may not, like you said, may not lead to the right answers right away, it's the process of progress, right? It's like getting there. It's the tiny little steps that you need, and that's why you need that money. Yeah, absolutely. It goes, I think it goes beyond just being quote unquote scientifically literate because just speaking for myself, I'm hesitant of the vaccine. I'm not usually hesitant of vaccines, but I'm hesitant because of what I know about the pharmaceutical industry and the kind of the thing that we were just talking about, about funding and about the corruption that is present in some of these companies that are pioneering these vaccines. So it's very complicated, and I think there's obviously a lot of factors that go into what's motivating someone to be vaccine-hesitant. It could probably range from mistrust and providers not showing up for their patients, medical racism, to 
questioning what's in the vaccine to questioning the whole system that produces the vaccines. So it's really tricky. And from my point of view, I feel like like having a vaccine obviously is a tremendous, a tremendous advancement. But at the same time, at least in the U.S. context, there's been such a lack of broad scale economic and social support that I think we are potentially over relying on this vaccine. And I question the degree to which we'll really see improvements until we also address these underlying economic and social issues. Well, I mean, you could think about the history of vaccines as allowing this to happen, right? Like the idea behind public health campaigns is maintaining the infectiousness of the poor so they can continue to be exploited as workers and not infect the rich. <laughs> the benevolence of the public health system is really, like, we can talk about that. Like, there's a strong history there. And I think you're so right. You know, like, the critique of biomedicine is correct. The social critique of biomedicine is correct. So how do we hold in our minds that that's true and simultaneously that these vaccines likely will greatly improve the rate of preventable death? It's super challenging, and I think the politics of vaccine hesitancy fascinate me because sometimes people seem to have such different ideological life worlds, and yet they're unified, right? This this thing really brings them together, and they might not agree about so many things, but they have a fundamental belief like about their body autonomy and mistrust of these large social forces that want to intervene in what is at that point a healthy body. We have different risk acceptance for prevention than we do for treatment. We might accept a treatment that might hurt us given that we're already sick. If our body is whole, what will we accept to take on risk for other people? So a different social contract. And so I find it kind of endlessly compelling because it gets at these really deep, unanswerable conflicts, I think. Yeah, and that's truly the difficulty in science communication as well, because holding space for all of that nuance is really difficult in a public sphere that typically requires us to be binary and to just sort of this way or that way. And I think as anthropologists, rightfully, we're hesitant to be that way. And it makes for a really interesting experiment in communicating with the public. Anthropology adds another layer to this because it has the cultural aspect too, which already what is considered hard sciences doesn't always have straightforward answers. But if you also throw culture in the mix, behaviors, constantly changing factors, variables that you cannot possibly take into account right all the time at all points. And I think this is one of the reasons why so many anthropologists are into science communication Because for us, it is not just about communicating science, but it's about really communicating our interests to people and the pandemic impacting our research and our view on things like vaccines and treatments and caring for each other, right? Being mad at somebody at the supermarket for not wearing their mask is mostly because you know that they don't really care as much about not infecting others because we know that the mask protect others more than protect yourself so all of these questions are deeply anthropological and even though people are not aware of that directly anthropology has really come to shine in this past year because of all these questions and our work really shows that yeah that's so well said alex and Another point about, about vaccines in general and biomedical interventions is that they're so 
new, like relatively to the existence of humans. And the field of virology was really catapulted into prominence after the 1918 flu, so like in the 20s. So the, the field of virology is very, very young compared to a lot of fields in medicine, which biomedicine, again, is just very new in general. This is one of the things I really, really leaned into last summer, kind of at the beginning of the pandemic, because the strategy in Missouri, the governor's official strategy in Missouri was to wait for the vaccine and give virtually no other guidelines for behavior or anything like that. And my soapbox was really that biomedicine is only going to do as much as it possibly can do, but this is something that is going to be mostly driven by human behavior. And so the number one thing you can do is isolate when possible. And if you have to go out, wear your mask. And if literally everybody did that, we would probably be in a better situation right now, a year later. Biomedicine does what it can with what it has. And again, I'm going to say the vaccine development and its distribution now is a modern medical miracle, in my opinion. But again, these things are driven by human behavior. And most recently, I think this really came to a head in the sense that diseases like this are extremely anthropological and people must understand the cultural context of them in order to really understand them. Back in 2014, during the Ebola epidemic in West Africa, why did the Ebola epidemic continue for as long as it did? It was intricately tied to the funerary rites of the people who were losing their loved ones, not because they didn't want the epidemic to end, but because it, it was a sacred thing for them to do that stuff. And so it's so important to understand culture and variation in that way too. And this stuff continues to happen. In my opinion, there's no excuse for us to have to start over every time something like this happens. We need to be able to build off what we've learned before. So we have a lot of work to do. I do want to plug really quickly that one of the best things that happened in the pandemic for me was like, I had nothing to do besides like sit in my house and teach. So my advisor let me take more coursework. <laughs> and so she let me take the immunology core. It just like opened up a whole world of new mechanisms to study. So it was really delightful. <laughs> and it really helped me explain the actual amount of science you need to know to really explain how like the mRNA vaccine works and to really explain how innate and adaptive immunity work. I thought I had it because I had human biologists and I had like my basic home bio, but I learned a lot. It's kind of hard to explain. I've seen a couple of really good YouTube videos, but to really explain how mRNA goes to the genome, but that's okay. <laughs> you know, it's really, uh, it's really tricky communicating it. Because the virus also goes to your genome. I always say that. People are like, oh, it's like it's changing your genes. I'm like, the virus is. <laughs> it's not just the vaccine. That just shows how important science communication is, which is much harder than just communicating your science, which is basically what we do in peer-reviewed research papers, but that doesn't really have a broad reach. So that's not what we mean by science communication, right? That's really trying to talk to a broader audience. It really emphasizes how important education is from early on. Education is fundamental to good science communication, but good science communication can absolutely further education. Yeah, and I think it can be a challenge to us. It can help us improve our own clarity of thought and clarity of our own interests. For example, I'm in this writing seminar and we did an activity where we wrote an abstract, you know, as we normally would. And then we wrote an abstract for an audience of our choice that was considered in the public. And 
it was fascinating. It was a fascinating experience because the way that I was discussing an abstract having to do with ultimate variation and pubertal timing and some of the mechanisms underlying that variation. And before I could even get to what I was doing, I had to explain quickly, like, okay, how do I explain evolutionary theory and life history trade-offs to a public audience? Okay, so let me start with that. And then let me go down and down and down and try to figure out how to communicate my message. It really does, I think, help to bring into focus, why are we doing what we're doing? At the end of the day, why do people care? Why should they care? And what's keeping us going as human biologists and anthropologists? So a skill that abstract I would have written would be to like second or third grade audience because it's not dumbing it down, but it's just speaking it to their level because they haven't taken science classes. They're still learning how to, if they're still teaching that. I actually did speak to a couple third grade classes about edible insects and I tried to tell them about how it's cultural variation and why some people eat insects and why people don't eat insects and the nutritional value of these and they got it a good way to practice this communication is acting like you're talking to third graders sometimes because they're ready to learn they're ready to pick up on everything they're the audience I like to talk to (laughs) yeah I was gonna say young people are so primed for learning and it's so fun because there's something that happens along the way and they learn what they're going to learn and they believe what they're going to believe and curiosity dies a little bit along the way but young people are so into it and so primed for it it's so fun talking to young kids like that well and it's funny because I think there is this sort of like stereotype that when you go into academia at some point no one's going to understand what you do And while it's kind of funny and and kind of true, because yeah, it's true, we do get into some of these really jargony conversations, there is a lot of theory, there is a lot of, in our field, basic biology. But at the end of the day, I want people to know what I do. I don't want to be this nebulous figure who no one understands, right? Like, I want people to understand what I do. So it's an interesting experience. This panel is graduate students talking to graduate students about hacks and tricks of surviving graduate life and the the wrenches that are thrown into the engine of getting your PhD. So knowing all this and with the hindsight that we have, what are some of the suggestions or things you would recommend to graduate students or potential graduate students that may be listening that are not quite as far into the program as some of us are or that are thinking about starting graduate school? Like something that Now, looking back, you are like, oh, I wish I would have done that. I would have been more prepared for any big things that may put your project upside down or what you thought was your set career path. And now suddenly you're like, oh, wait, I should be an epidemiologist. I would just say to embrace things as they come at you, because I've always been a proponent of multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary kind of all tricks of the trade and never really an expert in one thing because I find tools in areas of different fields really, really useful. So I've always just kind of embraced what came at me and kind of persevered in that sense. We talked about earlier, I just pivoted my research questions to incorporate and to embrace COVID because 
it's really a unique thing that we're living through right now. We're living through history and that we're going to be reading about it in 20 years and be like, yeah, I remember that day when all this stuff happened or this whole month and things went crazy. And it's really important to conceptualize and contextualize what we're living in and how to embrace these things to move forward. Because as researchers, we're lifelong learners. And if we learn from our day-to-day experiences now, I feel like that's what's going to help us out in the long run. I know I'm talking really broadly, but I feel like we all kind of just need to take a step back and take that into and that it's okay to not work eight hours a day. If I were to say that to a future potential grad student, take days off, take those mental health days, And if you see on Twitter or people bragging about how much they work or how many publications they're doing, just know that you're on the right track too. It doesn't matter what everybody else is doing because in the long run, you're actually going to finish and you're still doing you and you're still doing your research and that matters and you're going to get there eventually. So take the time that you need now to recover, recuperate because you never want to burn out. I think that is so important. Personally, I had a very, very hard fall semester last year, 2019, and the pandemic, everybody going online suddenly was actually kind of a blessing for me because I got to like really realize, wow, I am overwhelmed and I need to make changes. And one of the big changes that I am still doing today that has lasted this entire year is that I've taken weekends off. I don't work on the weekends. I answer emails and if I have to make a flyer or something sure you know do things like that but I don't sit down and write a paper my Mondays are the most productive days because I feel refreshed and I feel ready to go and I know what I'm doing but also that means that I finish well at the end of the week because I know I'm gonna take two days off to feel confident that I can take those days off before I used to kind of just do oh whatever I'll just continue tomorrow and there was like it was never ending and I think The pandemic really has taught me to, like you said, take care of my mental health. And that is broadly applicable. And that's that's fine. That should be broadly applicable. That should be something that everybody does. That's great. I should do that more, honestly. I have one logistic research-specific thing, and I have a couple like much broader things. My research-specific thing is I learned that when you go to do your research and you go to collect your data, get everything that you need but get a lot more than you think you need to because you never know when those things can become new research questions. You never know if those things will become new collaborations or if they can help fill in the holes of some of your questions that you didn't expect. So that's just one of my recommendations, just very logistically about research. Never take your opportunity to go and collect data for granted. Now, my bigger things that have more to do with graduate school life, pandemics, unknowns, things like that. The first one is that there are going to be so many things in your life and in your research that come up that you cannot control. And what you can do is focus on the things that you absolutely can control. And if you are just doing those things, you're doing amazing. I guess my example is at the end of 2019, I had a baby and that was something that happened in my life. And I had to totally reshape my entire life in addition to a pandemic hitting two months later. The things I can control are I can be there for my daughter every second of the day and I can be a great mom. And also I can take control of the two hours a day and be super productive in that time that I have by myself when she's in bed before I go to bed. So those are me specific, but 
the main idea still stands, right? Control the things you can control. Don't dwell on the things that you cannot control. And my final one is, this is for all grad students and potential grad students, but your PhD and your dissertation work is not meant to be your life's work. So it's actually okay if things go sideways or if things change down the line, because your PhD is really only the beginning. And it's okay if you have this amazing project that you love and you have devoted yourself to it and you want to continue doing it for the next 30 or 40 years, but things change and that's okay. And you earning your PhD is just the beginning of your life as a researcher. Uh, It's not meant to be an end. It is meant to be the beginning as you going out into the world and becoming the researcher that you'll become later. So those are just my few things that I wanted to leave graduate students who are listening with. The most salient thing to me whenever I feel really crappy about being a PhD student is I remember how crappy I felt before I was a PhD student. And I mean that really truly. I, it is easy to forget It is easy to lose sight of the immense privilege of what our lives are like. We get to live life like reading things that compel us, talking to people about things that we can't get out of our heads, pondering important deep questions that have been with us forever. It's like a really delicious life. It's a special life. When I was little, I didn't know about academia. There were no academics in my family. I only had like a TV or like a movie vision of what this would be like, right? I really liked period films. You know, my favorite were any images of women in revolutionary France and salons reading humanist literature together. I was just like, wow, life could be like that, right? And sometimes I just need to take time and remember that's actually what I got to do with my life. I got to manifest that for myself. That is so cool. You know, that is so miraculous. And not to let all the challenges of what we're doing take away from us this miraculous, privileged, beautiful life that we chose for ourselves, one that we wanted. One of the things that is important is that we open about what we have achieved. So if you have any achievements you want to share, anything that has happened to you in the past year that you want to celebrate, this is your moment. I published my first first author paper. That was really exciting. It just came out. It's shared first author with Jessica Cerdeña at Yale, and it's the first that we could find. Systematic review of intergenerational trauma in Latinx. So I also published a paper, my first sole author paper. It's a little one in the American Journal of Public Health. It's in a special student section. Mine was picked as one of 10 out of like 180 submissions. It was a crazy experience. I'm very proud of it. It's about how 1918 flu can teach us about this moment and what anthropology's role is. So it just came out a couple months ago. I'm very happy. Well, I didn't publish anything, but I just resubmitted my NSF DDRIG last Friday. So that's an accomplishment. So fingers crossed that I get that. But I also started painting as a coping mechanism to everything that was going on. And so I donate most of the profits anyways to other organizations too. So if you're ever interested in new coasters or anything like that, hit a girl up. Amazing. <laughs> That's beautiful. You should tell us your, is it Etsy shop or are you just an Instagram? So I just have an Instagram, a Weebly shop, but it's called Alibrihe Acrylics. And so I tried to partner with someone in Oaxaca to get local artisan artwork up too, but because of the pandemic, things are 
slowed down because most of the villages are all closed off. I would get the artwork from, but I'm trying to raise funds to donate a lot of the profits I get from the artwork to go down there and help out people that need it more than I do. That's amazing. Thank you. Yeah. So that's been fun. I have one success from this year. One cool thing is that I'm on a floss fellowship in Arabic and It's been really, really cool. Just further contextualizing my interest in doing fieldwork in Jordan with area studies classes and with really getting to a point in my language skills that feels really good and diving into the world of dialects. There have been unexpected sort of through lines with my anthropological work and this interest in Near Eastern studies. And that's been really cool. And then I wanna plug two things. I'm a co-creator of a working group based in UW, and we are called Anthro Data Science, and we host workshops on data science and computational statistical skills, and it's been really cool. It's basically a group that's really dedicated to learning and teaching these skills to each other and really emphasizing the power that social scientists have to work with these skills that aren't necessarily always recognized in social science. And so that's been really, really fun. We're always looking to bring in more people to collaborate with us. And it's just been a really nourishing experience. And then the other thing I want to plug is Louisa and I are starting an informal critical reading group on feminist science and technology studies and how that crosses over with biological and biocultural anthropology, which will be really cool. So if you follow us on Twitter, we have all of the information, the Slack page, all of it set up. We're really excited. There's already a handful of people, which is cool, from BioAnth, STS, and I recently saw like some people from Public Health Genetics. So it'll be really interesting and join us. We're going to read more cultural anthropology of science and particularly we're going to focus on human development, cultural anthropology of human development and see what it does for us. All of those sound amazing. Thank you very much for coming, for joining and for sharing your insights, your ideas, your work. It is always good to see different voices, different perspectives. And you ladies have contributed so much to this. This was an amazing discussion so thank you very much thank you so much we're inspired by all of y'all's work